At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn, and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. My guest today is not your typical coach. In fact, she pretty much throws most conventional wisdom out the window and has a fresh perspective on how to find purpose and success in life. Angie Cole describes her work as helping responsible renegades and rebellious rule followers create the work and life that keeps them lit up and well-paid. You see, Angie's a wanderer, a world traveler, and while plans and systems may work for some, she's an advocate for trusting your instincts when it comes to how you guide your life. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, including how she arrived at her own purpose, when we should use our feminine versus masculine energy, and how we should be thinking about money, value, and worth. Toward the end of our conversation, she reveals why she believes persistency is far more important than consistency. I'm really excited to share this one, so let's jump straight in to the conversation. Angie Cole, welcome to Inside Out. Billy, thanks for having me. Let's get started with this. Why is your Bose speaker so important to you? Why is my Bose speaker so important to me? I love that question. So music is important to me. I realized recently, even more than I had before, that I curate the soundtrack of my life all the time. (laughs) I have pre-client call music. I have wake up in the morning music. I have go to bed at night music. I have take a bath music contrasted with take a shower music. I have uppers and downers. I have I have pep talks. I have love letters to, you know, my clients. So I have all of this music that is really important to me. And so as a nomad, I realized early on that having good music, like good sound quality was important. So even though the thing is like a freaking brick, so it's it's kind of an older one too. It makes the cut. Even in carry-on life, it has made the cut for five years now. You're, it's a part of you at this point. And I, I love the way you put that, the soundtrack of your life. And isn't it amazing, the power of music and how it, it changes our mood, our emotion, and just has such a ripple effect in who and how we show up in the world. And so I love the way you put that. So let's talk a little bit about you and your approach to life. One of the things that I admire about you and and what I know of you is that you really think about things from a different lens, a different perspective. And and you, you don't take the path that is traveled by everybody else. You take the path less traveled. Where does that come from? Like if you could kind of go back in time, is that something from childhood? Is that something that you've adopted over time? Like what's the root of that? Mm. It's a great question. One I've been asking myself for at least 30 years now. I do think I was kind of hardwired with extra curiosity. And 
And I'm coming to recognize that I forget who I heard talk about this, but that there is, there's actually a novelty gene that some of us, you know, have a higher need for novelty and change. And I have that. (laughs) So I think that's part of it too. And then, you know, I grew up in a tiny town. I grew up in a small town in Tennessee and luckily had parents who, even though my dad grew up in that town, um, he left when he was a younger person too. They just always really told my sister and I that the, the world is a bigger place. There's more in the world than Rockwood, Tennessee. So I think that was a pretty foundational message that I got, even though we didn't really go anywhere. Like my parents weren't, we weren't going on vacation. We weren't doing any world traveling. They just repeated that message. So I think that encouragement was a big part of it. And then. As I've lived, as I've lived more life, as I pushed the edge and figured out that the boundaries weren't that real, that the, you know, the shoulds and the musts were really pretty flexible. And the more I pushed that edge and the more I realized mm. how flexible they were, I, I really adopted this mindset of why not? I had, um, oh God, how old was I? It had to be in my 20s. Long story short, got presented with this opportunity to go live in Baghdad in 2003 or four. So very early Mm -hmm. uh, invasion years. And it was one of those first really big, um, this is so bizarre. I have to know. Like, how do you not know? You've got this right in front of you. I asked all the questions. I could leave whenever I wanted to. There were, you know, like all the fail states were kind of there that to me made it feel like an, a reasonable risk. And I just remember thinking, how do you, how do you not? How do you tell the story of how you got this opportunity and didn't go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. So that kind of curiosity has really, led me you know to some really cool places and then when those things worked out it reinforced the fact that I could trust my instincts around it and I could trust myself to do those things yeah I love the why not mentality and and just the curiosity that you have is super inspiring and I by the way I totally relate to that novelty gene I think I have it too because I just don't like doing the same thing I you know and learning more about your story as I was researching prepping for this I was like, oh, I totally relate Mm -hmm. to a lot of the things which we'll dive into. So yeah, I have that gene as well. And I'm just always, the same doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't compute. Like why do the same when you could do different? And I also share your love of travel and you being the free spirit that you are, the wanderer that you are. I'm curious, how has travel defined the human being that you are today? Mm, Such a good question. I would say the biggest the biggest thing it has done to define me and change me is expanding what I think is true about the world. Expanding, you know, things like how you order coffee. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've been fascinated by as I travel are the things that are vastly different and the things that are mundanely the same and things that we just take for granted of this is how a washing machine works, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Or this is how, yeah, coffee. That's a big one for me because I always have to figure out it's one of my first requirements in a new country is how do I get them to give me the thing in the cup the way I want it to be? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's much more challenging than you might think. So it's, you know, I was already someone who questioned what's true, what's the norm, how does this work? But it's reinforced that as someone growing up in North America, we just have this very universalist view that how we do everything is how everyone does everything. And it's really so pervasive as Americans. And I think, you know, even North Americans that we just, I certainly did. I just had this idea that that's just how washing machines work, period. And that everybody has a dryer at their house because how else do you dry your clothes? Yeah. 
It's just not true. So I question even more now everything. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And I love the fact that you're, you're questioning every, I mean, to your point, I think growing up here in the, in the, in the, in the U S we, we have this bubble and we kind of think and assume that everything is the way in which we experience it. And having traveled as much as I have, you know, I, what I realize is clearly there's, there, there's so many other ways that people are living and surviving and going about their day to day. I'm so on just your level when it comes to everything that you're saying. And so I want to describe the way you describe how you help people. You say that you help responsible renegades and rebellious rule followers create work and a life that keeps them lit up and well-paid. Why do you describe it in that way? Like, I'd love to just walk us through your mindset as you describe what you do in that way. So the second part of that is what came first, creating work that keeps people lit up and well-paid. What I have discovered over the last seven years of building my business and in my career before that, because I've always had a really, I never had a job that was just a job. It's the thing my dad and I probably fought about the most. (laughs) My dad was old school and he just, you don't work for fun. Work's not supposed to be fun. It's a job. It makes money and you don't complain that it's not fun. But that never worked for me. I knew that I needed to be lit up. And for me, that's a big part of that is I have the brain chemistry of someone with what we call attention deficit disorder. And if I'm not lit up, if I don't, if I'm not excited about what's happening or curious or challenged, it's not happening. No Mm. matter how much I want it to happen, it is not happening. So as I started my own business and I was like, man, if I don't figure out how to stay excited and and curious and on my own edge about this, this is not going to (laughs) work. Because in a, in a conventional workplace, those things are somewhat artificially built in when you have a mm-hmm. boss, when you mm-hmm. have somebody else giving you a deadline, when you, you know, you're worried about losing your job, <laughs> then you get stuff done because otherwise you're going to get in trouble. But working for yourself, you don't really have those things. And so in the beginning, I just really started paying attention to what are the things I'm putting off? What are the things I'm avoiding? Mm -hmm. And as much as possible, minimizing those things. Some of that is just comes with the job, right? I have to worry about money and taxes and bookkeeping and, but minimize or offload as much of that as possible. And that's how I've built my business. And at this point, I'm at the... (laughs) In terms of the models I see around me, I'm at the edge of that, the edge of testing. What does that possibly look like in terms of really only following my excitement? And if it's Mm -hmm. not lighting me up, not doing it. And well paid, man. I just, I really believe that money's not the bad guy. I really believe that, I was just talking with our mutual friend, Jeff Harry, the other night about this, that... I think it's how the good guys stay broke. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of this story that money is evil and that bad guys have money and, and that that's that combination is what makes them the bad guys. I think that's part of the key to unlocking a lot of this. Um, Mm. So I want us meaning me, the good, the good folks, the good guys, the good gals, the just, the equitable, the, the generous, the loving, the, the, I don't know, expansive. I want us to have more of the money because money is just energy and it's power and it's option and it's ease and it's flow. I want us to have more of that so that we can do amazing things with it. Mm. So those two pieces, though, they seem they're short and sweet, lit up, well-paid, but there's a canyon of meaning under those for me, because it really just connects to everything. It connects to social justice. It connects to, I'm creating this whole body of work around money, value, and worthiness because over and over people come to me to talk about their business. And what we end up talking about is they don't feel worthy. They have some story about why it's not okay for them to make money. So those two things have been a really guiding uh, 
light for me in terms of knowing who my people are and knowing the people who I can really help. And then that first part. Yeah. Responsible renegades and rebellious rule followers. And I, and I, by the way, I just, I love the intentionality and the purpose and the meaning behind that back half. And I, and it doesn't surprise me that was the, the, that was the primary or initial component of, of how you're really identifying your mission and who you're serving. So, but yeah, I, you, yeah. you took the words out of my mouth. So talk about that first half. Yeah. And I, well, before I go to the first half, I just, I do want to reinforce something you just said. It came first and it, 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 it does have that depth because I didn't pull it out of a hat. This is one of my soapboxes when it comes to branding and, and business and especially folks that are just getting started. There is so much pressure. Mm -hmm. crippling pressure that I myself experienced in the beginning about nailing that statement. Who you help, what problem do you solve? La la la. In the beginning, you don't know. You can't know. It's the discovery, doing the work. I only nailed those pieces because I started doing the work. And by Mm -hmm. doing the work, I discovered what are the things that really matter to me and light me up and keep me well paid, right? Yeah. So I just want to add that plug in there because I think it's such a relief. I, I over and over again, see it be a relief to people when I tell them that they don't, they can let that go for now. Mm-hmm. Let it go. It will come. You will know. You will have to wrestle with it. It won't be fun or easy, but you'll get there. And once you have it, it will be a guiding light. So that makes a a ton of sense. And and it, it kind of goes back and we, we can get into this later, but it kind of goes back to like the bio too, and your allergic (laughs) reaction to bios. Right. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll save that, but let's talk about that front half, but I totally, I'm totally, totally connecting with you on this. Cool. Yeah. Um, so as I continued to chew on this darn thing, because I kept having coaches and mentors and teachers who kept asking and clients who kept asking me to answer that question. Who do you help? What kind of coach are you? I kept chewing with and trying to find words that felt true, not just about what I help folks do, but who really are the people. And they fell into one of two categories. I started to notice this pattern of people showing up and saying they wanted to work with me who were really unlike me in the need for their variety, their free spiritedness. They were folks on the other side of that spectrum who had always followed the rules. I just talked to a woman the other day who said, I've always done what I'm supposed to do. Mm. And they're miserable. They felt empty. They did not feel lit up. They were not well paid. And they are pretty heartbroken and furious that the rules didn't get them what they were promised. Oh, yeah, I have chills thinking about that. But as these people kept showing up, there's um, another friend who we might have in common, Jonathan Fields, who is creating a body of work of, around what he calls sparkotypes. There's just another kind of personality, work style, purposey kind of inventory. And I really enjoy it and I use it with my folks sometimes there's one of the like personality types called the essentialist and the Mm -hmm. essentialists are the people who like they are motivated by order and structure Mm -hmm. and rule following. Like they love the rules. They love getting it right. They love finishing the thing. I do not have an essentialist bone in my body. (laughs) None of that does it for me. At all. I could not try. I could not be that person if you told me my life depended on it. But I kept having these people show up who are essentialists. And I was like, I think you got the wrong person here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything about that. I cannot help you be a better essentialist. And thank goodness for this one woman, Beth, in particular, she looked at me and she said, Angie, I don't need to be a better essentialist. I need you to help me be more free. Mm -hmm. I need you to help me have essentialist as an option and a superpower and not a cage. So 
that's where I started to realize that that end of the spectrum of folks, the rule followers, I could be helpful to them because the, they weren't getting satisfaction from the rules. They weren't getting satisfaction in the, the things that the system of the rules has promised them that they will get. So they're ready to be a little rebellious. They're ready to be bold and they want some guidance and support and some bumpers as they do it. God, it's so, so powerful because I love that you say that you didn't know until you started doing the work and that these people, you were attracting these people into your life, not because they wanted more of the same, but because they needed something different. They needed to be free, yet they were always the responsible Mm -hmm. renegade or the rebellious rule follower because that's how they were conditioned. I'm curious, what common patterns or themes, anything consistent have you found in the people that gravitate into your orbit as clients that, that they, that they have some, aside from maybe being the rule follower, what other things stand out in your mind as, as patterns that they have and and maybe patterns that need to be broken? Hmm. So one big pattern that's emerged is kind of more closely tied to the um, the renegade and rebellious part, which is I tend to attract folks who have some pretty audacious ideas about what's possible. Mm-hmm. Jeff Harry has also helped me coin the the phrase flipping tables. They're table flippers. <laughs> They're, <laughs> They are, uh, they've, they're audacious enough to believe that they might be able to make a difference to some big systems. So taking on, I had a client who was looking at the world of finance and women in finance and how that can be different. How do we get women closer to the big money? The, the legal profession, schools, parenting, the United States government. So I have folks, healthcare, I, have, I, I just tend to attract folks who have raised their hand to say, I'm going to give this a shot. And what I've come to understand is that requires a different approach. When you're someone who's willing to step to the edge of the way things have always been done, you can't be looking for a roadmap. <laughs> You can't Mm -hmm. be looking for someone else to show you how this is going to go. And you really have to develop a different compass because you're the trailblazer. You are blazing the path. You're not following anyone else's path. You can feel lost and lonely when you're doing that because you get out to the edge and you look around and nobody else is there. pretty easy to conclude that maybe you have taken a wrong turn somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. That's a pattern that I continue to be excited about. And at this point, I'm not surprised. Like that isn't, those words aren't on my website anywhere yet. But there is something in the, in the vibe I'm putting out that lets those folks know that this is the place for them and that I can hold that with them. Because I think that's another big part. That's, I mean, that's exciting though. I mean, you have disruptors effectively coming into your, like I said, your orbit, and I, I think you're attracting that into your life some way, even if it's not on your website, there, there's a reason for that. And I, I have to guess that because you are the type of person who doesn't like you know, the traditional path, that that lends itself to those type of people who also shouldn't be taking a traditional path because of what you just said, right? If, if it hasn't been done before, there's no map, there's no compass, there's nothing telling you, and you shouldn't be following a kind of traditional path, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's the reality. So, okay. So here's my question. So these are leaders, clearly, if they're, if they're visionaries or if they're people thinking like they're going to go to the edge as, as you've described it, what are the changes that they need to make on the inside so that they can make the type of impact they want to make on the outside? So I think one, one of the biggest things is what we just talked about is letting go of the idea that you're going to find the answer somewhere out there. We are really steeped in a guru culture. We're steeped in economy of expertise where we are told that there's there's no amount of money we shouldn't pay to get the Mm. answer, right? The right answer. And 
I think that's driven by a desire to minimize mistakes and minim- like to maximize efficiency, right? Shortest distance between two points is a straight line. False. When you are at the leading edge, you don't know where you're headed. And so <laughs> taking a straight path that somebody else thought was a good idea 10 steps back has a lot of downside to it and actually a lot of inefficiency. There's a great chance you're going to end up somewhere you don't want to go. Mm. So I think a bit, one of the big shifts is, is re-engineering direction finding. What is your compass? How are you charting your course? What are you listening to? How, who, who, and, and what are you trusting? So a lot of the work I do with folks is, recalibrating their guidance system so that it is driven by instinct so that it's internal and they're they're listening for and paying and feeling for what's the ni- what's the right next move for me because some of those bold moves some of my greatest bold moves in life that have been genius were completely illogical. They didn't make sense. They didn't add up. But I knew. I knew something that that nobody else knew. So that's a big part of the work is just learning where does how do what does instinct feel like? Where does it come from? How do you know it? What's the difference between fear and instinct? Because they can really sound a lot the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a big one. Love that. And I I watched your live where you talked about this sort of epidemic that we have in the self-improvement space where people are doing exactly what you just said, which is if you don't invest in yourself, then you don't care about yourself. And if you don't do this, then then that. And I think you're so spot on. And I'm nothing against some of the programs that exist. I'm sure there's wonderful programs out there, but I also don't really subscribe or believe in the philosophy of fearing people into taking action. I just don't think that's the way we need to do it. And I think there's, there's no evidence that that is the only way. And, and, and often in the cases, your own guidance is going to lead you there. So long as you have the ability, as you've said, to understand and listen to that guidance in a, in a real way, let's take this, go another layer here. So as you work with your clients, how do you help them get better in tune with that guidance? What are, I mean, what are some action steps or philosophies or ways in which people can trust their instinct or at least listen to their instinct more clearly? Mm -hmm. So my method, air quotes, I would call it, um, as I describe it to them is, you know, we're not going to like go figure out what your instinct feels like and then come back to your life and apply it. We're going to use your life and your business and whatever is in front of you next as a living laboratory to try these things out. So that's, that's one part of it is we just look at what are the decisions, what are the things coming up that, are, that need maybe a different look, and we'll use those as the proving ground. The other big part is understanding and examining what are the things that block our instinct and what are the things we've been taught? We have systematically been taught to mistrust our instinct. Mm-hmm. Especially if you belong to, you know, I used to say, especially if you belong to any sort of marginalized group, women, people of color, queer folks, but you know what? Straight white dudes got just as much of this as anybody else because your instinct is feminine. Your instinct is inherently feminine. You have masculine and feminine energy. I have masculine and feminine energy. And they rule different parts of our our knowing, right? My brain is great at thinking. I have a big, beautiful, masculine, well-hung brain. (laughs) And... (laughs) I love that. And my feminine is just fierce. I mean, she's like sitting in moon circles and steaming her yoni. And like, she's, she is super witchy and wise. And when they work together, that's, that is an unstoppable combination. So 
as straight white dudes, your instinct has also been crushed because you've been told to live only in your brain. You've been told to be reasonable and logical and um, individualistic, right? Just like all for one kind of thing, like every man for himself. So that's a big part of this, of this too, is just helping folks understand where in that system have you been taught to mistrust your own instinct and what covers it up? Does that answer your question? Yeah. So, and I, it does. And I want to expand upon it because I'm really intrigued by this masculine feminine energy concept. And, And it's, I've been thinking about this a lot, quite frankly, um, specifically because of Clubhouse and my voice. Because I, I know that I have, and this is not necessarily you know the mindset piece, although I'm sure it ties into that. I know that I'm naturally a very energetic, high kind of a hype guy. But I recognize that if I talk a little bit more softly, a bit more, if I channel a little bit more of that, I just did it right there. If I channel, like I just, I just need to bring it back, bring it back. And because and it, it, it just on a voice only platform, allowing that side to come out, I think is really, really helpful. So I'm curious from a mindset standpoint, how do you help people balance those, those two energy forces that exist within all of us, as you've said, and I think that's mm-hmm. such a great point. It exists in all of us. How do, how do we find the balance? How are we able to acknowledge that, acknowledge that they exist, but then also allow them to both do their their work right because they each have powers they each have things they offer um and so how do you bring both of the both of them uh, to the point where they're offering their value so i think the first part of it is just and this <laughs> takes some folks a little bit of time and some work to recognize that you do have both and that they both have value that might sound simple but because everything labeled as feminine has been made to be less than Mm. and weak and soft, not in a good way. Recognizing that they have equal power, equal value, and depending on, equal is even misleading because when I use my feminine in the right way at the right moment for the right thing, she is infinitely more powerful than my masculine for that job. Mm -hmm. But if I try to use her for things that she is not suited for, narrowing, decision-making, honing in selection, that's masculine. If I try to let her make the decisions, we're just going to go sit under a tree somewhere and like breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I love it. So she sucks at that job. I, I have to let my masculine come in and just be the like, the decide we're going to, we're going to pick and we're going to go. That's what he's good at. So, so I think that is a big part of it is just starting to become, uh, become aware and awake to the idea that you have both and that they do different jobs really well. Yeah. That makes it, Oh man, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense because if you know what the, cause I think value is, almost too vague. It's like, where is our energy most valuable? Where is our masculine energy most valuable? Where is our feminine energy most valuable? And recognizing and acknowledging that will help to allow us to let that particular energy shine through at the right time. And so I guess the awareness piece is really important and being observant is really important. Once you have that down, how do you then take the next step to to be able to turn one on and turn one off? Like, do you have any advice there? I think a good place to start. I know that my masculine is doing a job it shouldn't be doing or when it's not time yet, when I'm trying to force something. Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to force something, if I'm trying to make a decision and it feels tight and hard and scary and... Like my body's just doing like two canyon walls kind of crushing together. Like if a decision feels like that and I'm trying to force myself through this narrow passage, it is not the right time. So, so over, 
overdrive masculine feels like force. It feels like pushing. It feels like, um, yeah, force is the best word that I have for that. On the other side of that, if, (laughs) if I feel like I'm, uh, sitting back too far. Like, I'm just going to really let this go. I'm going to disengage. I'm going to go eat some ice cream and watch Netflix because I just can't even, Mm -hmm. I'm out. (laughs) That means that I'm too heavy in my feminine side. Not that ice cream and Netflix isn't a great thing. (laughs) But if I'm doing that specifically every time it's time to do my taxes, that's a clue for me that I am too much, my feminine is out of balance. I'm too heavily on that side. So force and avoidance are good guardrails for what's called for next. Mm. Okay. That makes a ton of sense, right? So the two ends of the spectrum, on one hand, you don't want to force it. On the other hand, you don't want to be constantly avoiding it, perpetually avoiding it. And so being able to recognize when you're forcing it or when you're um, avoiding it, it you know, in, in, in within those bands is the, is the right place to be. Yeah. Love that. Okay, cool. So I, I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier and something that I know is really uh, a big part of what you're studying and, and paying attention to right now. And that is the relationship that we have with money, value, and worth. And so I'm curious, you know, we are on this hamster wheel as you've described it. And and w- why is that something that you've chosen to think about? Is it because it's become a re- reoccurring theme with your clients? That's part one of the question. And part two of the question is, how should we be thinking about those things and how they interrelate to one another? The truth, the real truth about how I came to be interested in this work. The first time this entered my life. I was um, probably about a year, year and a half into my business. I had this little home office. We had just moved into this house. I was getting it all set up and I had those big flip chart papers, you know, everywhere. I'm really visual. I like to draw big on markers and like see it all laid out. And I'm (laughs) got myself sequestered in this room for what felt like weeks, just trying to figure out what the hell am I doing? What, why am I doing this? What is this about? How do I answer the question? What kind of coach are you? (laughs) Right, right, right. And it was this almost like out of body experience. I walk up to this flip chart and just with my big magic markers, I write worth and value at the top of this page. And I just kind of step back and look at it. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like what worth and value. I don't know what that means. Why am I? And I have these conversations with, I don't know, whatever higher power you may or may not think is out there. Sometimes it's just me, but having this little child, like, what am I supposed to do with that? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So that's truly how it started. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, tell my clients that I'm so I'm haunted by ideas sometimes. So that it just haunted me. I didn't know what it was supposed to be, but I knew that whatever I was up to with this business, it wasn't it wasn't ever just going to be about coaching people. It was going to be using coaching as a vehicle for understanding important things. So that's the first thing was was value and worth. <laughs> I was like, all right. And then I did start to notice that that pattern with my clients that I, that I mentioned before, which was I started saying I was a business coach. Didn't know what else to say. People want you to tell them something. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that seemed as good a label as any other. And so people started coming to me and we were talking about their business and their work and money would come up and inevitably we would end up with them usually in tears (laughs) talking about how they couldn't raise their rates because they didn't feel worthy of that money Mm -hmm. or they felt bad. They felt like they couldn't do good work and be a good person, which is your inherent worthiness and get paid money to do good work. I was like, man, we got to figure this out (laughs) because what seemed clear to me was that if you're a good person trying to do good, well, and what I was seeing happen, if you're a good person trying to do good work in the world and you're not getting paid, Mm -hmm. what's going to happen eventually? 
you have to stop doing the work. You're going to have to go get a job at Taco Bell. Like you're going to have to go do something else to make the money because we just still do right now live in a world where, you know, the electric company doesn't take chickens. They, you have to give them some money. So that led me, I was like, I don't know what this means. I don't know where this leads, but it was clear that it was um, a code that needed cracking. So it was about seven years ago. The code that I cracked was what was happening is we were trying to substitute. And so money enters this equation in the trifecta because money is a primary way that we reflect value. Mm-hmm. You buy your nice, fancy, you know, pendant lights and your pretty microphone, all the things, because that money exchange is equitable for you. The value that you receive in return is, you know, reasonable to you in the in the money that you're exchanging. So I was like, all right, money is part of this. And what I came to realize is that we had collapsed all of these together. Because why on earth were we talking about money and people were bringing up worthiness? We'd gotten them all tangled. Mm -hmm. So I needed to understand what are they distinctly and how do we begin to separate them? So money is just that. It's one shorthand that we've used. Instead of carrying around pigs, we use money to reflect value. Value is created. So value is dependent on agreement. Um, you wouldn't pay for those microphones if you didn't agree that that was equitable value. So, and value is created by fit. So I'm holding up this water bottle, which has a ton of value. If what I need is water that is kept cold, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Value is created when the thing is the right thing for the job, for the thing that is needed. If I'm cold, this water bottle, same thing, hasn't changed. Terrible, terrible, <laughs> right? No value. So value is conditional. It changes based mm-hmm. on the context. And it's about fit and it's about rarity. So if I have the only one of these in the entire village, high value, mm-hmm. right? One vessel holding bottle, high value. If, the, if these grow on trees in the village where I'm living, then like, who cares? Nobody cares. They're just like a dime a dozen. This becomes really important when we're trying to to define and and evaluate with money the services we're putting out to the world and the things we want to make money for. People get all all mixed up around, well, you know, people can't afford that. That's none of your business. <laughs> That's none of your business. If you had a million dollars and I had the only water bottle, you would give me your million dollars if you were, you know, someplace where this was the only water bottle to hold water. So it's none of your business what other people can or can't afford. We got to get out of other people's bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Again, that is a whole other thing I could go down, but there's there's a lot there. You just have to know what, what the value is for you. So then worthiness. Worthiness is unconditional. So value based on conditions, based on context, it changes based on the situation. Worthiness does not. Okay. Worthiness is, I sometimes exchange it for unconditional love. So when we can hold unconditional positive regard, unconditional love for ourselves, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then we're not out there trying to artificially create it by being valuable. If I don't feel inherently worthy, if I'm not sure why I'm here or why anybody should keep me around or like what the big deal is, I'm going to go out and try to find some reinforcement that's going to give me that feeling. Mm -hmm. And an easy way to do that is to be useful to someone else, to become highly valuable, because then we get reinforced that people need us around. We're doing a good job. We're being productive. We're making a lot of money Mm -hmm. or we're saving a lot of money. So that's how those, those three things get strung together in a way that's really harmful. Because if I'm constantly hustling to try to get a sense of worthiness, it is a bottomless pit. It will always run out. (laughs) It will always be depleted and I will always need more. Mm -hmm. 
So how should we then be filling our worthy tank? I mean, how do we do it on our own without having to go to outside validation or confirmation of of our worth? So we have to fill it from within. We have to... Now, remember I told you it was unconditional. So Mm -hmm. good news, bad news. This is the really tricky part. (laughs) Unconditional means... I extend love and positive regard for myself, even and especially when I screw it up, when I gain 50 pounds, when I have a terrible coaching call, when I'm a jerk to my sister. Those are the moments when I could get hooked back into the idea that because my value took a hit, Mm -hmm. I was a crappy sister value down. (laughs) I could get hooked back into the story that I have to earn my worthiness. And because I didn't earn it, I don't deserve it. Those are the moments that it really, really matters that you give it to yourself anyway. As you do that over and over again with time, it becomes easier. It becomes less foreign. It becomes less (laughs) horrifying. I could tell you the story of when I really got that. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I got the value part much earlier. So I told you I've been working on this for seven years. Um, I got, I understood value. I was like, cool. I get how that can fluctuate and change. And I get, because I was talking to people about their businesses and their work, I get how the money part works and I get how we can do that. And I get that worthiness is different but I don't really understand what it is. Well, no surprise because I hadn't learned how to give it to myself. I mm-hmm. hadn't really embodied what self-worth felt like. And I was living by myself in this tiny little cabin in Maine overlooking this beautiful lake and trying to put my life back together after a breakup. And was pretty clear that I was repeating this pattern in relationships, which was looking for external validation to try to feel worthy. And that I was going to have to figure out how to stop doing that, or I was going to keep doing the same thing. And I kept pondering this, well, what is worthiness? How do I, how do I do self-love? How do I know what that is? How do I love myself when I've screwed up? And for some reason, one day I'm sitting at my desk and I look across the room And I had this big, and I was already living a pretty minimalist lifestyle at that point. I had very few things. Anything that had made the cut was like really important, really functional or really a beloved thing. And I look across the room and I have this huge two foot tall green stoneware vase. It does nothing. It does no job, nothing well, highly inefficient. Like the amount of space it took up made no sense. (laughs) I kind of tried putting my yoga mat in it for a minute to just like justify its existence. (laughs) Um, But, but I, you know, inherited it from my dad. It had this kind of sentimental feeling to it. And I just loved it. And as I was sitting in my office that day, looking at this thing, I was like, that, that is the feeling of worthiness. It does no job. It has no value in that definition of value, right? It's not good for any job at all. (laughs) In fact, it's the opposite. It's only, it's only a liability (laughs) in the asset balance chart, right? But I loved it. And Even if I dropped it on the floor and it broke into a hundred pieces, I would keep a piece of that vase because Mm -hmm. I love the color. I love how it feels. I love what it means to me. I love the memories. That is worthiness. So I realized that I had to start finding ways to feel about myself (laughs) the way that I felt about that vase. Mm, man, that's, I love that analogy and, and that powerful 
story to illustrate the how something can have worthiness. Knowing that after having that experience, what are the ways that you can offer yourself that self-worthiness that I think most people are resistant to give themselves? Can I ask you a question in that context, actually? Love that. Of course. Anytime. Yeah. What do you think makes us resistant to that? Why do you think Mm. we're resistant? I think that we, we have inner doubt and we have a biological setup in our brain that puts us in a, wants to prevent us from being put into harm's way to Mm. avoid, avoid risk and to be safe. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we underestimate who we are and how we show up in the world because we want to avoid anything that could put us in danger. And because of Mm -hmm. that, we, um, we kind of push ourselves down and minimize what we are capable of um, because we don't want to fail is, is kind of what I, what I think. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for that. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I want to pull those two apart. So there's the doubt side of things. Um, And that kind of goes into some of the ways that we've been um, taught and even, you know, in our own experience, reinforced to not trust ourselves. That safety risk part, so much of that actually lives in the value realm. Mm -hmm. That, because that's where we're extending ourselves. That's where we're putting out there is when we're trying to provide and create value. That is the brilliantly powerful possibility of separating these two. But you do have to work on the worthiness foundation because we need worthiness. We need that sense of okayness to survive. If we don't know how to get it independently, we'll get it through any means necessary, which is being valuable. So I want to make that distinction. And that's, again, that's a whole other workshop. <laughs> how do we, how do we yeah, step totally. into value that isn't, linked to our worthiness. Because when we do, then we can take all kinds of risks. Because then if I screw up, I'm good. Like my sense of okayness and worthiness and lovableness in the world doesn't take a hit. So I can take these really fun, cool, creative risks around how I create value in the world without the risk of feeling like I'm not okay. So the Going just back into the the worthiness realm itself, I love that you said we're resistant because I de- I see that and I've felt it in myself as I started to be curious about, well, how do I feel about myself the way that I feel about this face? A really surprising thing that I discovered was my self-flagellation, <laughs> my absence of self-positive, unconditional positive regard. I had kind of come to believe was the only way I was ever going to get anything done. Interesting. Without that, I was pretty convinced I would be a like 900 pound shut in, just like loser. Like that. I just would not that every bit of control I had was going to be gone. Cause that's the only way I knew to motivate myself. <laughs> To get to do things or not do things. Okay. Okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is that mean voice? Do you have a mean voice, Billy? Do you know what I mean? Everybody has the the beast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the only way I knew to not just exclusively eat chocolate cake all day or to to (laughs) never get off the couch or to never write any emails or be productive at all. So that was a big one, I think. And and then I've tested this out in the field, as they say. And that comes up for my clients too. Well, if I'm just kind and loving to myself, even when I fall short, aren't I just going to be like a blob who never gets anything or cares about anything? Mm. The answer is no. Um, so that's a big piece of resistance. <sighs> Here's the other one that um, is really important. I told you that it's unconditional. The tricky part is that we know all the conditions. 
it's easy to extend that positive regard to other people. Think about people who you love unconditionally, right? Mm -hmm. They could, they could really screw up and you'd be, you'd be all right, right? You'd still love them. Because we know intimately and are most likely accumulating and holding on to all the ways in which we have screwed up like big time and done dark things and bad things and mean things and dastardly things. We have that accumulated set of conditions that we think um, disqualify us for unconditional love. So those two are the things that I see that get in our way and, and cause us to be resistant to this idea that we could actually let that mean voice go. Yeah, no. And, and I love it because I think there is so much truth to the, to the mean voice. We all have heard this mean voice tearing us, yeah. tearing us down and telling us why we're, why we're not worthy instead of doing the opposite and building us up. What is an action step that we could take to, counteract that Mm. our steps if you have steps yeah so the first is a little bit of faith um i like to run experiments so anytime i'm gonna try something that i do not know how it's gonna work out (laughs) Mm -hmm. i just call it an experiment and to me that lets me off the hook a i don't have to do it forever And it puts me in the place of my kind of scientific, curious brain. Like, let's do this and see what happens. So it also puts me on alert to notice what what is different when I try this thing. So agree with yourself that you're just going to try this experiment. Just try it out. 30 days or 24 hours, if that's Mm -hmm. all you can muster, of no mean voice. That started for me, um, I just remember as I was like, well, how do I do self-love? Like, I don't even know what that means. I don't know anybody who knows how to love themselves. So where do I start? It started with no mean voice. And (laughs) I remember saying to myself, we don't talk like that in this house. Mm. And it reminded me of what a parent might lovingly but firmly say to their kids is we don't, we don't talk like that here. And so that's what I started using with myself when I would hear the mean voice, you idiot, I can't believe what's wrong with, you know, and that's a mild version of my mean Mm -hmm. voice. I would just, I would just simply pause. I would say, we don't, we don't talk like that. And I would pick anything else. I I wasn't going to be like, I'm really bad at fooling myself. So I can't like just pretend I couldn't go into it's all right. And you're going to do that. I couldn't go into like sugary sweet. That was not going to work for me. But the rule just was anything else. As long as it wasn't mean voice, pretty much anything else was allowed. And that um, that's really how this started for me as I just broke the habit because the mean voice really is just a habit for all the reasons you described and all the reasons I described. It's a protective mechanism. It's a motivator. It's yeah. the thing we really think is keeping us safe in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's programming that's present that in ways needs to get overwritten. So, okay, is mm-hmm. that what you've just described, which is basically saying no to the mean voice and, and silencing the mean voice as best as you as you possibly can, is that enough to maintain self-worth or is there something to fill that cup up? and? And, and, I'm, and, and, you know, cause the thing I think about is, okay, that's a pre- preventative from reducing your self-worth, but does it, does yeah. it just by virtue of that, does, is that all, is that all that's needed? You think? So I do think it is, first of all, it is already plenty. If you do nothing else, your life will begin to change. Mm. Fact. So it is plenty because what you're doing is protecting your self-worth. You already have it. It's not gone. You just have lost your connection to it. So that will help you reconnect with and begin to practice worthiness. And then 2.0, I would say, is not abandoning yourself is choosing, choosing yourself. 
And what I mean by that is when I left my relationship, I chose myself. Mm -hmm. There was no good reason for me to go. By all standards, I had a totally fine life with all the things and the just on another uh, podcast the other day where I was talking about I had the couch and I had the hot tub. Like I had all the things you're supposed to have. <laughs> but I knew I had to pick me because I wasn't happy. It didn't matter what anybody else, everybody else thought I was crazy. Nobody else could figure out why I would want to leave this relationship. Yeah. But I knew and I had to pick me. So I think, so that is 2.0 is beginning to not only pay attention to, but make decisions based on what feels good to me, mm-hmm. what makes me happy, what is pleasurable, what do I want, what do I desire. That's what really begins to build a higher functioning sense of self worth. Yeah, prioritize me. I mean, uh, fundamentally. Okay, so last question, and then we'll share where people can learn more about the brilliant work that you do. The last question is simply this. What commonly held belief exists that you, within your space, within, I'll call it the the, the, the coaching and the personal development and the, the enriching other humans' lives space, what commonly held belief do you passionately disagree with? Oh, oh, there's so many. <laughs> yeah. Have fun. Oh, <laughs> uh, two big ones that come up for me are um, consistency and productivity. The, there's this really strong message in the, you know, in the world of productivity and online business that you have to be consistent. And, and if you're not, you forget about it. You're a loser. It's never going to work. You're never going to work. Just like forget it right now. As someone who is categorically incapable <laughs> of the kind of consistency they're talking about. So they're, they, the, the royal they, that definition of consistency means you show up at the same time every day and do the same thing. So like every Tuesday I do a Facebook live at 4 15 PM and you know, that kind of consistency is what we are just pounded to believe is the only way life and being successful is ever going to work. It's a bunch of hoo-ha. And for most of us, It's not only um, impractical, it's ill-advised. Because if somebody shows up at 4.15 every Tuesday and they don't feel like doing it and they're bummed out or they're faking it, that's more detrimental to any sort of connection or audience you're trying to create. So, and it doesn't just apply to people who are trying to build, you know, online followings or, or spaces. It's, it's any of us. If you're trying to write a book, anything you are devoted to doing, I highly passionately believe that persistence is much more important. Awesome. Consistency, forget about it. Be persistent. Be doggedly persistent. You're going to fall off. You're going to forget. You're going to get bored or annoyed or scared. Fine. Just come back. Just come back and come back and come back and come back. That is the thing that I see that makes the difference between people who actually do and achieve and create the things they want to do and the ones who, you know, fall off a year in because they're trying to be consistent and that is unsustainable. But persistent is sustainable and self-perpetuating. So that's a big one. Love it. Love it. That's a, that's a mic dropper right there, my friend. I love that. Thank you so much. And so I just want to end by having you share. I know that untamingthewild.com is your website. So definitely check that out. Also, you have this community study hall. So maybe you could describe that. You're on LinkedIn, you're on Facebook, Instagram. Where should people find you? And what would be the thing that you'd want to leave the listener with? Yeah, my website is a great place to start. You'll definitely get a sense of who I am and what I care about and what I'm up to. 
I've got all kinds of rants and raves in written and video form. Uh, so that's a good place to get to know me and to also just get more of this stuff. So like I said, money value worth stuff is it's big. And a lot of these ideas of like not having a plan, I don't actually even keep a to-do list anymore, which is anarchy. Um, I've, I've had conversations in other podcasts like this about those things. And I think when that's a new scary idea to you, it helps to kind of hear that, just like talk it out. So Mm -hmm. all those resources are on my website. Study hall is just my favorite little thing. So study hall started three years ago now, I guess, same little cabin in Maine. I needed other people to help me be accountable for the things mm-hmm. that didn't light me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right? I love that. I love that. Yeah. I needed other people to show up with me. My sister and I used to do this thing uh, that we used to call babysitting. So <laughs> when you needed to get something done, like clean your room or clean the bathroom, somebody else, the other person would just come sit with you. And we discovered that there's just huge power in doing that. So mm-hmm. when I really needed to get motivated, I created study hall which is a virtual co-working gathering. So people just bring the things that they are working on. I usually encourage folks to pick something that they're really procrastinating, that they've had a hard time starting or finishing on their own. Those tend to be some really powerful study hall projects. And we just come together and we work for two 40-minute chunks of time on our own independently, but on our computers and over and over again, people talk about the power of, you know, normally they would have gotten distracted and gone to make a sandwich, but instead (laughs) they stayed, they kept their butt in the seat because they knew these folks were there, you know, holding the space with them. So it's cool. And we always have a dance party halfway optional, but highly. (laughs) I love that. How, how, How often do you do it? Typically it's the first Monday of every month. Okay. There are times when I'll do a pop-up and during COVID, we, you know, beginning of, of last year, we did a lot of extras. And now at the beginning of this year, we've been doing some extra ones. But if you go to the website under study hall, you'll see all the dates and times and it's super easy to join and it's free and it has the most amazing energy. They're just the coolest folks who show up. So it's really cool. Brilliant. Brilliant. I had uh, David Burkus on recently. He's an author and his latest book was made possible through what he calls work sprints, which is very much as you've described your study hall. It's like getting people together who are both working on something. A lot of times it's something creative or maybe something that doesn't light you up or doesn't, maybe it lights you up, but you procrastinate doing it. Yes. And, uh, and, and believe me, I think there's immense value in that. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful, deep and rich conversation. And I'm so grateful to you Please keep helping the responsible renegades and rebellious rule followers create a work and life that they will be both lit up and well-paid. Angie, thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you, Billy. This was lots of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.